I'm recording this on Yom Yerushalayim, the day that we celebrate the liberation of East Jerusalem during the Six-Day War in 1967 and Israel's continued sovereignty over the United Holy City. While we thank God for giving us this miraculous gift, many others are suggesting that this gift doesn't belong to us at all. In fact, they say the entire state of Israel is an illegitimate enterprise born in sin and destined to be transformed into a binational state without a Jewish character. It seems to me that those voices are growing louder and louder. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. One month ago, at the end of April, the Harvard Crimson editorial board published an editorial entitled In Support of Boycott, Divest, Sanctions, and a Free Palestine. I don't think I'm going out on a limb by claiming that Boycott, Divest, Sanctions, that is BDS, is fundamentally and morally outrageous for at least two reasons. First, that it singles out Israel as if Israel is the world's worst pariah state. And second, its real goal is as much the elimination of the state of Israel as it is the granting of Palestinians the right to self-determination. Supporters of Israel on both the left and the right widely condemn BDS, and rightly so. Yet the Crimson editorial concludes with the following sentences. In the past, our board was skeptical of the movement, if not generally speaking of its goals, arguing that BDS as a whole did not get at the nuances and particularities of the Israel-Palestine conflict. We regret and reject that view. It is our categorical imperative to side with and empower the vulnerable and oppressed. We can't nuance away Palestinians' violent reality, nor can we let our desire for a perfect imaginary tool undermine a living, breathing movement of such great promise. Two decades ago, we wrote that divestment was a blunt tool that affected all citizens of the target nation equally and should be used sparingly. Yet the tactics embodied by BDS have a historical track record. They helped win the liberation of black South Africans from apartheid and have the potential to do the same for Palestinians today. Israel's current policy pushes Palestinians towards indefinite statelessness, combining ethno-nationalist legislation and a continued assault on the sovereignty of the West Bank through illegal settlements that difficult the prospect of a two-state solution. It merits an assertive and unflinching international response. The arguments made against BDS could have been, and indeed were, once made against South Africa. And we are no longer inclined to police the demands of a people yearning to breathe free. We do not take this decision lightly. BDS remains a blunt approach, one with the potential to backfire or prompt collateral damage in the form of economic hurt. But the weight of this moment, of Israel's human rights and international law violations, and of Palestine's cry for freedom, demands this step. As a board, We are proud to finally lend our support to both Palestinian liberation and BDS, and we call on everyone to do the same. Now, let's admit, Harvard is only one university, albeit a very prestigious one. But does the Crimson's move towards BDS represent a wider trend that needs to be addressed? Is world opinion moving away from Israel? On Yom Yerushalayim, should we be celebrating, or should we be afraid of what the future will bring? Rabbi Uri Pilachowski says that concerns like these are misplaced. And that contrary to the popular narrative, Israel is in a better position even regarding public opinion than it has ever been before. We'll get to that conversation in just a moment. First, 
please subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum page on Facebook and join and participate in The Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. We have some fantastic discussions there, so check it out today. I'd also like to ask you to become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, JCH merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. It's just a few dollars a month, and you can cancel at any time. We're looking forward to your joining the Jewish Coffeehouse team. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to reach hundreds or even thousands of listeners? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffeehouse can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or record and relax and let us do the heavy lifting, JCH Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let us help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jchpodcast.com, that's jchpodcast.com, to learn more and to sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage your audience today. Rabbi Uri Pilichowski studied in Mivaseret Sion for eight years, then moved to Beverly Hills, California to become the assistant rabbi of the famed Beth Jacob Congregation. While at Beth Jacob, he created a national model for teen and youth departments. From Beverly Hills, Rabbi Pilichowski moved to Boca Raton, Florida, where he was the Rosh Beit Midrash and Gap Year advisor at the Shek Hillel Community School and served on the rabbinical staff at the Boca Raton Synagogue. Rabbi Pilichowski created the first teen pro-Israel group in the country that taught students to advocate in Congress for a stronger U.S.-Israel relationship. In July 2014, Rabbi Pilichowski moved to Israel, where he works as senior educator at Nefesh Benefesh's Zionist Education Initiative. He is the author of three books and writes weekly columns for the Jewish Press and the Jerusalem Post. Rabbi Uri Pilichowski, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. Thank you for having me. We're going to speak about Israel advocacy on campus in particular, and we're recording this right before Yom Yerushalayim, and not that long after, a Harvard Crimson editorial came out on April 29th, which I don't know, it's actually one of my questions, I don't know if it's representative, but I'm afraid that it's representative. This is an editorial written in the Harvard Crimson, the newspaper or the student newspaper of perhaps the most prestigious university in the United States. And after years of the Crimson's editorial board, which obviously has a lot of turnover, after years of its refusing to endorse BDS, i.e. boycott, divest, and sanctions, now they suddenly publish this editorial entitled In Support of Boycott, Divest, Sanctions, and a Free Palestine. So what does it mean to you, Uri, that the Crimson has changed its editorial policy? Is it representative or is this a one-off? So, okay, so I think your question is, is a great question, but I think it's uh, I think your question will be put, put into two different questions. The first one is, is it representative? Uh, and the second one is, what does it mean? Uh, so the, so first off, it's, it's, it's not representative. It's not even representative of the Crimson. Uh, after that editorial was published, it turned out that the way the Crimson publishes its editorial opinions is it takes a vote of an editorial board, but all dependent on who's in the room at the time. Meaning there's something there's 38 members of the editorial board, but not all of them come to all the meetings. So they the when this vote was held, not everybody was there. Um, and what came out afterwards was that had everyone been there, it never would have passed. So it's not only is it not representative, I think, of college opinion out there, um, it's not even representative of the Harvard Crimson. And in the editions that came out afterwards, the Harvard Crimson is a daily publication. And the in the daily publications that came out afterwards, uh, the current students former Crimson uh, editorial board members uh, just 
all you know, people from all spectrums of the crimson community came out in protest of this of this uh, you know, editorial. So not only is it not representative of the American college scene, but it is definitely not representative you know, of crim- of the crimson itself and the Harvard community. You had your second question of what is it? What does it mean? Um, that being said, and that it seems like that's very good news. At the same time, the Harvard Crimson printed an editorial that was in favor of BDS, which is horrible. Uh, so the fact that that got through and made it out there means that there is a significant amount of the population that definitely believes that. And that's cause for concern, but not worry. OK, can you delineate what you mean? Concern versus worry? Yes. I, I think that when you when you talk about worry. Right. And you say, OK, is this the future of America? These are the, the, the number one university in America, one of the top Ivy League schools, one of the top colleges in, in all of the United States. Um, and they're coming out with something like this. So now we have to worry about the future of um, the American relationship with Israel. Right. Because if, if this could be uh, you know, for foretelling a horrific future of, uh, of a weakening of the relationship. So that's that's that would be cause for worry. I don't think we're there. I don't think that you know, when you look at uh, uh, probably in the course of this conversation, I'll, I'll tell you one shocking stat um, that will change the whole con- the nature of our conversation. But I, I so I don't think it's it's foretelling something that we have to be worried about of a weakening of the relationship between the United States and Israel. I do think it's concerned because there are major publications that would never have said anything like this in the past. And now they feel that they can or should. All right. That leads directly to my next question. When you say you don't think we're there yet. Obviously encouraging, although concerning. I graduated college in 1994, and while there was some anti-Israel activity going on, it was, first of all, virtually unheard of among Jewish students, or even if it was, it was really at the absolute fringes. And even those Jewish students who were protesting Israeli policies, to the best of my knowledge, were not saying Israel shouldn't exist at all. That, however, seems to have changed significantly, both among Jews and certainly among non-Jewish students. Things are definitely changing. So... So let me bring you out a poll that, that was conducted um, when you were in college and then again a couple of years ago. And, uh, and I think this will give you uh, a cause for confidence and explain the phenomena that you're referring to. Uh, so a poll was conducted in the 1990s among college students, and the poll came out with essentially the same numbers of anti-Israel sentiment that you find in the polling today. Same exact numbers in the 90s. Now, if those anti-Israel students that existed in the, in the 1990s, right, be, it carried on with their anti-Israel thoughts, then what you would find is today's people our age who were in college or high school in the 1990s would be, uh, you know, would be anti-Israel, right? They would be, they would be anti-Israel today. But the numbers are very positive among middle age and people, you know, the, the, the boomer years about, about being pro-Israel. So something, so something shifted. Right. So they shifted from being pro, you know, from being anti-Israel to being pro-Israel, same people. Right. And the numbers improved. So what we what we tend to see is and what we what we're seeing is that as people get older, they become more pro-Israel. Right. And I think that from you're, you're an educator, I'm an educator. And we know that that people without putting them down, students you know, in their late teens, early 20s, have very ideological positions where they where they 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 are very sympathetic to what they perceive as the weaker party, but as they mature, they begin to understand the nuance involved in different you know different types of uh, of of, uh, of situations and conflicts, and begin to see that things aren't so simple of weak versus powerful. There's there's a different there are more dynamics and different things that are that are involved. 
So I, I think that's uh, that, that's the phenomenon. And that's why these type of, of you know, phenomena that occur where you see anti-Israel students, they don't concern me that much because I understand these students, some of them, yes, will continue being anti-Israel, but most of them will, will mature, begin to understand the situation in, a gr- in greater detail and go on. That's very interesting and, of course, encouraging. At the same time, it does lead to a couple of questions. Here's my sure. first question, which goes back to what I just said. I wonder about that poll which says there was just as much anti-Israel activity in the 90s as there is in the 2020s. Sentiment, sentiment, not activity, sentiment. Okay. How do they measure that? What does that mean? So, exactly? so whether or not you, activity would be you know, how many rallies do you have on campus? Um, sentiment is questioning students, are you pro-Israel, are you anti-Israel? Right. So, so the, the poll are, was asking students and asking people in their 40s and 50s who are today in their 60s, right? Um, are you are you pro-Israel? Are you anti-Israel? You know, do you feel that should be? I don't know the exact questions, but it was more about sentiment, not about measuring campus activity. Campus activity is a whole different dynamic, which has a lot of factors that lend to it. You know, are there more protests on all different issues on, on campus? Do campuses encourage more activity? So therefore, whatever students are feeling will naturally rise in terms of campus activity, in terms of protest and, and the, the ideology and fervor of the time. At the same time, I still wonder, when you say anti-Israel sentiment, the definition of anti-Israel may have shifted, and that's what worries me. In other words, as I mentioned before, it could be that once upon a time, anti-Israel sentiment means I don't believe that Israel should be occupying Jerusalem or the West Bank. Today, anti-Israel sentiment might mean I don't believe Israel should be there at all. In the 1970s, we had the United Nations pass a resolution that held that Zionism equals racism. Right. So things, you know, I, I'm not the, the Debbie Downer. I'm not the let's find the. Uh, That's my job. The, the, right, right. I'm not the type of person that says, let's find the, the dark you know, cloud on every sunny day. You know, so so I'm looking I, I see things as 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 very positive. And I'm looking at the, at the difference. You're looking back and back in a time in the in the in the 1970s and the, in the yeah, where in the 1980s still where Zionism equaled racism. And then you you've watched, you know, prog- you know as things have progressed and been much more. Uh, become much more pro-Israel. The, the the Arab boycott was was a complete failure. BDS has completely failed. It's backfired. There's more companies, more more trips to Israel, more things that more engagement with Israel than ever before. And a lot of times we're seduced by voices on social media. Uh, by by you know the loudest voices have become the most extreme voices, or the most extreme voices have taken up the most air out there. But that doesn't mean that that's reflective of where society is is standing. Right? People look at if you look at the United States Congress, so people are terrified because you've got the squad. The squad is nine people. The votes in Congress are just as strong pro-Israel as they were. People say, oh, my gosh, the Democratic Party is is, is being overtaken by anti-Israel sentiment. Well, it, when we were in high school and when we were in college, anti-Israel sentiment was overtaking the Republican Party. You had George W. Bush, George H.W. Bush, excuse me, who wouldn't give loans to Israel to for Soviet Jews unless Israel promised to get out of the West Bank. Right. And, and not and no longer grow the West Bank. And, and the Republican Party was seen. Jim Baker, right, was the chief of staff and the secretary of state was seen as the most anti-Israel person in the world. Now we don't have secretaries of state that are that are anti-Israel in either administration. Right. We look at them today. Secretary of state is a Jew is a Zionist. So you look at things and, and things have only improved. Look, we're Jews. We love seeing the, the worst of things. Right. We love complaining. Okay, things connect. Well, when people like come to me with these complaints, I say, OK, what would be perfect for you? What would you want? You know, do you want like an Israeli flag draped down the, the, the portico of the White House? That'll make you feel better. Like, you know, as I say we, we have the largest amount of, of financial aid, of military aid from America to Israel. We've got Arab countries knocking on the door to normalize with us. 
right? We've got Saudi Arabia for the first time, who's an enemy of us, investing $2 billion in Israeli industry. So we're worried about college newspapers in the United States run by 20 students who are taking advantage of an empty room to get their opinion out there. Meanwhile, the entire world is shifting towards normalization with Israel. Okay. Very happy to hear that. I'm still going to push you a little more on that, even though I hear where you're coming from. And then I have to go back to one of the questions I wanted to ask before. You mentioned that Jim Baker, during the administration of George H.W. Bush, was considered the most anti-Israel guy out there. At the same time, had you asked Jim Baker, at least in his public pronouncements, should Israel exist? He would have thought the question's absurd. Of course it should exist. That wasn't even on his radar screen that it should be replaced by a binational state. At the same time, the squad and the members of the squad, if you ask them, they would probably, or at least some of them, openly say Israel should not exist. There should be a binational state or a Palestinian state in its place. So yes, it's now switched to the Democratic Party instead of the Republican Party, but the sentiment from, is more is more radical, I would say. But it was switched from an, from an administrative figure in the, sitting in a cabinet, walking into the Oval Office every single day, to a member of Congress in a largely Somalian district that could care less about Israel and a representative from Detroit, Michigan, who now has to battle because her district has changed and she's not representing the most Palestinian district at all. So, right, so you're talking about very, very few inconsequential, powerless people who can't get a bill passed and can't get anything done. um, And we're comparing them to the former Secretary of State of the United States of America, right? So that's, you know, that's not... I'm going to go back to that original statement you had about sentiment on college campuses. A different question. And this is quite anecdotal on my part. It seems to me from discussions I've had with younger people, I'm sorry to say that that no longer includes me, but discussions I've had with younger people, seems that the sentiment and positive feelings towards Israel has lessened from what it was once upon a time. Now, obviously, I only have a small section of people that I talked to, a small section of people that I knew back then. But it seems that even among more committed Jews, who perhaps you'd assume would have a greater commitment to Israel as well, the idea that Israel is the good guy in this dispute, et cetera, seems to be lessening. I, I don't know how to measure that. In other words, right? You said it's anecdotal. So, uh, you know, I, I speak to my, I have a, a th- it's probably a little over a thousand students on college campuses. They're proud Zionists. They tell me that all this stuff that you read is a bunch of hubbub. Yes, there, there's apartheid week on college campuses, but it has no effect on anything. Uh, you know, so so the, the, the anecdotes go both ways. Um, and, you know, the polling that, uh, that you know, we referred to before. So, uh, you know, shows that nothing really has changed. Again, we, we have to be very careful not to conflate voices, air being taken up, at, you know, on the bandwidth and what's actually happening uh, in people's minds. Um, I think that in the end of the day, when it comes to the to power bases and when it comes to, to people's thoughts and, and, and where, where people's sentiments are, Israel enjoys tremendous favor in, in the United States, uh, both among college students and, uh, and among adults and among the power base. That's an, it's a nice thing to hear. You're certainly flipping the script on me. Let me ask you then, how did that happen? How is it? that Israel has ended up winning the Hasbara war or becoming more popular in public sentiment, if that's really what's going on? I think it's, it's, especially in America, I think it's very clear, right? Americans look for people that share their values. Everybody looks for people that share their values. They look for people that look like them in the mirror, right? They want to see what we, what the, what the we see. And when you look in the dark, dark neighborhood of a Lebanon controlled by Hezbollah, of Syria, which is going through a 10-year uh, civil war of five different uh, forces, that are you know completely uh, one against uh, 
went against each other, right? And uh, and and in, you know, ISIS that's in North and Jordan, Jordan, which is a which is a king, it was a complete total dictator. Saudi Arabia, which is you know, just allowed women to drive, you know, and uh, and is now allowing women in, in, to have uh, vote in municipal elections because they don't have national elections because they have a king. So America look Americans look at this country and say, okay, hold on a second. I look at Tel Aviv. I look at Jerusalem. These people look like me. They run the same exact life. So I, I speak to many members of Congress that come visit Israel. And the number one sentiment I get is, this looks like America with a little biblical past, you know? So things here aren't 200 years old. They're 4,000 years old. Yeah, and that's, that's the difference. But the people, the people are exactly the same. So, so the, the number one thing that connects Americans, and I think that post 9-11, when, when Americans said, okay, the threat is now at home. Right. Islamic fundamentalist extremism has now hit the shores of New York. So now who's on our side? Who stands with us? And no one stands with us more than Israel. And not only does Israel stand with us, they have the expertise to teach us how to fight this threat. So I think those are those are factors. And then you have the whole business component where outside of, of Silicon Valley, the second uh, biggest form of, of high tech in the world, R&D centers and, and business development is here in Israel. So every company has has put themselves here, which means that all of those millions of people that work for every high tech company in America knows that they have an Israeli branch. And those are good people because they work with them. I want to ask you about a couple of claims in the Harvard Crimson editorial. And you created the first teen pro-Israel group of the country, which taught students how to advocate in Congress for Israel. So I want to know how you would tell people to respond to a couple of claims of the Harvard Crimson editorial. Is that okay? It's okay, But I'm just telling you, my answers are going to be anticlimactic for you and very disappointing, but go ahead. That's okay. The Harvard Crimson was very clear that we are not being anti-Semitic. We condemn anti-Semitism. Anti-Zionism or criticizing Israel is not anti-Semitism. What do you say to that? Okay, so I'm going to give you my answer of how I would answer the question if asked the question, and then I'll give you the actual answer to the question. And every single one of your questions based on the Harvard Crimson, when my students say, well, what do we answer when people ask us about that? My answer is always the same. You don't answer there's no reason nobody, except uh, I'm standing right now at the Nefesh Benefesh Aliyah campus in the middle of Jerusalem. That's, this is where I work. And right across from me, I have the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, right? They're, they, they're, 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 their offices are right across the street. Okay? They're the only people that have to answer these questions. They are the paid professionals to defend Israel to the foreign community. Every other Jew in the world and every other Israeli citizen and every other li- lover of Israel, Jew or not Jew, has no responsibility to answer questions just because they accuse us of doing something, right? Nobody that goes up to an American standing at, at, uh, at the airport in Paris and says, you know, Americans are racist, is going to feel the need to answer the person. They're going to look at the person and be like, you're strange. And then they're going to walk away. So why do we, as Jews and as Zionists, feel that we have to defend every single charge of Israel? We're 74 years old. We are a powerhouse, both economically and militarily. We are, we are older than over half the nations in the world. We're not going anywhere. We're well-established. And just because somebody in the Harvard Crimson decides to throw a false accusation at us doesn't mean we have to answer it, right? Just like if the Harvard Crimson wrote something about, about Canada, nobody in Canada would feel, hey, we should really answer that newspaper. No, we don't. We're Jews, so we're completely and totally paranoid that we think that if we don't answer every question, they're going to end us. No one's ending us anymore. So I want to, as, as Zionists, we do not ever have to answer these questions. Okay, now let's answer the question. Okay, so 
So, so <laughs> the question is, right, it, you know, can you be critical of, of Israel uh, with, uh, you know, and be anti-Zionist without being anti-Semitic? So the answer is yes, of course you can, right? Um, you can be anti-Zionist without being anti-Semitic, depending on one factor. What's causing your anti-Zionism? If your anti-Zionism is based in a in a in a, uh, a a feeling and a sentiment of Israel doesn't have a right, Jewish people don't have a right to their own country, okay? Well, then that's anti-Semitism. If it's based on I think this land belongs to the Palestinians, then I'll say, okay, factually, we have a disagreement. We have a disagreement, and let's go into how we measure how places, des- how people and nations deserve their own land, and we can see if there's if there's really a disagreement here. Or we just have a different understanding of the facts. So it really depends. Now, I have to tell you that in the conversations I've had with anti-Zionists, I have found 95% of the conversations I have, it's more based on anti-Semitism, whether the person's aware of it or they're not aware of it, than in a factual disagreement over how we determine who gets a who gets a country. And by the way, I definitely respect what you said before of resisting the urge to answer every single question. Of course, when you're doing that, you're playing on their playing field as opposed to your own. Right. And alongside that, I will point out, however, that Rashi, the very first Rashi in Chumash, we all know, probably the most famous Rashi there is, says that, how do you answer when the people say, you're thieves who stole the land from the Canaanites? No, no, wait, hold on No, but no, let me, let me. Rashi says. I know what you're going to say. I'm going to say the same thing. We need to know for ourselves. It says, We need to know to answer for ourselves. Not that we have to respond to them. They will right. say that, but we need to know for ourselves. Not to, They're right. not going to care what we say, but we need to know for ourselves. Yeah, there's that's right. said in Perkeavo says, you should know what to answer and not be porous, right? A heretic. But it doesn't say that you should answer the heretic. In fact, the Rishonim, right, our great scholars on that Mishnah all say, don't answer heretic. There's no point. So, we have to stress to our students. Our students are terrified, especially in high school. What am I going to say when I get to the college campus? And the answer is nothing. You don't have to say anything. Somebody says to you, you know, like uh, I have you know, problems with Israel. And say, I also have problems with Israel. We all have problems with Israel. Israel's a democracy. And, uh, you know, if you want to change things in Israel, move to Israel, get a vote, run for office and change whatever you don't like. But that doesn't declare that Israel is illegitimate as a country because you have a disagreement with its policies. All right, so here's the next question I wanted to ask you about that editorial. When it says that Israel is an apartheid state, which the Harvard Crimson said very clearly, it compared it directly to apartheid South Africa. So once again, not in terms of what I would answer them. How would I tell myself, how do we know ourselves that that is an illegitimate argument, assuming that you believe it is an illegitimate argument? That I won't even, like, I don't even near because you have to explain to me why it is an apartheid state. Uh, nobody can say, say that way. When, when you say to somebody, Israel's an apartheid state, why? Right? What makes an apartheid First, define for me what an apartheid state is, and then explain to me how Israel fits that definition. Nobody can do that. Nobody. That, that editorial doesn't do it. Right? That editorial just makes a statement. It says it's, a, it's, it's conditions that it treats the Palestinians are apartheid. Well, it doesn't define apartheid, and then it doesn't explain how apartheid fits. Forget about the analogy to South Africa. Of course, it does not apply whatsoever. But right, so it doesn't even get off the ground. So I'm not going to address why Israel's not an apartheid state until somebody can come along and explain to me why the the, the, the you know well, this is the orthodox conundrum. So I assume most of your listeners are, are familiar somewhat with Talmudic uh, you know uh, methodology. Where's the Hazamina? Where's the even first thought that this is a uh, that it's an apartheid state? Yeah, why would I address this? 
Okay, how about this one? One more, and then we'll go on to something else. It says that Israel remains America's favorite First Amendment blind spot. And this is not really an anti-Israel argument. It's sort of an anti-America argument saying that the United States will allow anti-BDS resolutions to go through. I think it says that 26 states have anti-BDS resolutions, and that is actually a violation of the First Amendment. Now, I don't like BDS either. At the same time, I kind of hear that argument. The question is, how is it not a problem for the First Amendment? Okay, so I'm not a First Amendment scholar. But one thing I do know about the First Amendment is the First Amendment says you have the right to protest and you have the right. The laws don't prevent anybody from from participating in BDS. It's a scarecrow type, a straw man type of argument where it's saying that now nobody can participate in BDS. No, all it says is that if corporations participate in BDS, then the states will not invest money in them. It doesn't. There's no penalties whatsoever for anybody that participates in BDS. So every single person still has the exact same First Amendment rights, as do corporations. Corporations must understand, though, that if they involve themselves in an in a anti-Semitic BDS campaign, then states will not participate in it, and they will not fund that the, those corporations. Moving on, Uri, because of all the positive statements you're making right now, someone might say, well... What's your job then? What does Uri Polachowski even have to do if people are moving towards Israel in any case? Why is there a need to plead Israel's case? Because it's happening anyway. What is your role? We don't have to plead Israel's case. I want to make everybody a proud Zionist. I don't want people to defend Israel. Uh, my, my job has never been to get people to, to defend. And it's never been a job of mine. And I wouldn't take a job like that. My job is very simply to make sure people are enthusiastic about Israel and participate in Israel and teach students how to strengthen the relationship between the United States, of which I'm a citizen and they're citizens of, and Israel, because it's in the United States' best interest, not because it's in Israel's best interest. So that's not my job. My job has never been, okay, folks, if you hear this, answer this, right? No. And we shouldn't be doing that, as I, sta- as I stated. So I'm very happy with the job I have, which is to teach Zionism and get people to be excited about Zionism. And uh, my job is never going to go away because, I mean, as long as Rabbi Fass will keep me. Because my my job is to is to get people to be to think about Zionism, to think about where they want Israel to be and to strengthen their relationship with the state of Israel. Here's a question, not really about Jews, but about advocating for Israel in general, which therefore might take it a little bit outside of what you normally do. But I've spoken to some people who are involved in Jewish Christian dialogue, talking to evangelicals, and it seems to be a truism that unlike what you're saying in terms of the general sentiment moving in Israel's direction, that among younger evangelicals, it's actually gotten worse. Meaning young evangelicals in evangelical colleges, and remember, evangelical support of Israel is a very, very important base of support for Israel. Some of the younger evangelicals have much more antipathy towards Israel than certainly their older peers, and also perhaps people in the past did. It's not so much that they're anti-Israel so much as they don't care or perhaps don't want to be seen, again, I don't want to explain their motivations, but apparently don't want to be seen supporting something which is so supposedly anti-progressive. So my question is, does that fly in the face of what you're saying in terms of the positive movement? Because if the future of the evangelical movement is less pro-Israel, that is a lot more significant than even if we got every Jew on the planet to be pro-Israel. Uh, I, look, I, I don't, yes, if it's true, then, then uh, it's something to, to, be, to work on. Um, I have no idea. I'm friends with evangelicals, but I have no idea um, anything about the young evangelical community. And I don't know who's conducting these polls. I don't know if there's an agenda to these polls. Uh, you know, I, I just, I simply don't know. So I don't know if these polls are just like the polls that are meant to get people scared um, in the Jewish community. Like, look, our, our youth are not, uh, you know, there's a whole industry there, a fear industry of getting everybody scared 
um, about about uh, you know our youth and, and their you know the sort of splitting off from Israel. I I, I don't know if that's if that's true or not. Um, so I can't really speak to young evangelicals. If it's true, then I would ask the evangelical leadership, hey, you got you have your work cut out for you, and we're here to help. How can we be here to help? Tell me about that. In terms of, because obviously we know we have to reach out to the largest communities out there. We can't just confine our activities towards the Jewish community. How would we help them? I think the best thing that for the most convincing way of, of, uh, of showing people what Israel is all about is bringing them to Israel. Once, once an American steps foot on, on Israeli soil and sees the amazing, amazing uh, state that, that Zionists have created here, that's the greatest selling point. Yeah, so if we can get them here, then, then you sold them. So I would start bringing the leaders, and we do that. The Maccabee Task Force does that, right? Different people bring out, and there's other places. I'm not, I don't want to limit it to them, but they you know, bring out leaders. I speak to the Maccabee Task Force pretty frequently when they, they come here to our Nefesh campus, and uh, and they're wonderful people. And they, they, you see it click. With can you explain what the Maccabee Task Force is? The you know, Maccabee Task Force are, are, are non Jewish leaders on college campuses that, that come out to, and are brought out to visit Israel to see. What exactly is going on? Uh, the, the Jewish National Fund was well, brought up professors here yesterday, right? Non-Jewish professors. And these people, as soon as they start to see it, they start to realize, okay, that what's going on out there on social media, and the, the, you know, what, what's, the, what's being presented to us is not the real truth of what Israel is all about. It's not even the truth of what Zionism is all about. So they get to learn about Zionism and they get to see, okay, now I understand Zionism is not an exclusionary uh, movement. It's an inclusive movement and making sure that Jews have a right to be in their homeland and determine their own future. Let's move back to the concept of Hasbara. What happens when Israel does something, and I wish it didn't happen, but I think it does. Israel does something which is incorrect. Israel is not perfect. I think we'll both agree. It's not yet the Gula Shlema. We have not yet reached the final of redemption, at which point I hope Israel will be perfect. But at the moment, we're not there yet. When Israel does something wrong, whatever it might be, what do you do? Do you double down? Do you admit it? What's the proper role for somebody who is in the argument? I know you don't have to have an argument with everybody, but if somebody is on TV talking about it, what does one do? So I, I think, first of all, just to make, make one point here, when we have the Gula Shlema, because it's an Orthodox conundrum and I can, I can talk about this, it is no, we won't be perfect. We have an entire Meseches Horios about when we make a mistake, right? There's no guarantee that we're, we're never going to be perfect. We're human beings, so we make mistakes. And all the more so today when we're not there, right? We make mistakes. So what's the problem of admitting that we make a mistake? What's the problem of saying, I disagree with Israeli policy, right? What, what all of a sudden, right? The problem is that we, we assume, oh, we disagree with Israeli policy. That means that Israel's illegitimate. No, right? It means that Israel made a mistake. So we can get up and we can say, yeah, Israel made a mistake. That's the greatest way of silencing our critics because our critics are assuming that we're going to admit no fault. And then they can grab onto that and say, Okay, we're admitting no. They're admitting no fault. They're not. They're not a. They're not. They're not. A, they're not a, you know, The obvious mistake that they made, they won't. They won't admit to. So how much more are they hiding? If we get up and say, yeah, that was a big mistake. I disagree with Prime Minister Bennett. I disagreed with Prime Minister Netanyahu. But you know what? That we're a democracy, and I'm allowed to get up and and do that. Yeah, and that's part of being a Zionist. Part of being a Zionist is not saying that there's no problems. Part of being a Zionist is saying I'm committed to improving the Jewish people. And that's what I'm going to do. Uri, your wife is the mayor of Mitzpah Yericho, which is a settlement in the West Bank. Correct. What would you say if somebody were to tell you, Uri, I believe that Israel does have a right to exist, but I cannot accept anything about the settlement enterprise. I think that's completely illegitimate. There should be no Israeli control of the West Bank or Jerusalem. How far do you go? 
do you say, well, this person already accepts Israel's right to exist, so to speak, and therefore that is a valid argument, even as I disagree with it, presumably? Or do you say, no, that's going too far to say the Jews have no right to the West Bank, that the idea that Israel is in control of the West Bank is illegitimate. That, too, is a form of illegitimate and unacceptable anti-Zionism. Okay, let's make something very clear here, okay? Saying Israel has a right to exist is absurd, okay? I agree. If, if If you're 85 years old and above, I'll permit you to make that statement because you were alive when Israel didn't exist. So for you... It's a novel idea, a uh, chiddush, that Israel should exist. You don't say things, about, you, don't, you don't say that, that a 74-year-old institution has a right to exist. It does. I don't care what you think about it. It exists. If you want to live in a, rea- in a, in a world where reality doesn't have a basis, so then, okay, great. I don't listen to you when you say Israel has a right to exist because ice cream has a right to exist. Cars have a right to exist, right? And, and all these things were created around 74 years ago, and they all have a right to exist, and nobody talks about it. So that's number one. If somebody says to me they criticize Israel's policies on settling Yehuda Shomron, so that's a discussion we can have. That doesn't mean you're an anti-Zionist. I have family members that firmly believe that I shouldn't live where I live. I love them. They're Zionists. Their kids serve in the IDF. That's great. Okay, let's have, we can have that discussion about what the best policies for Israel is. The same way, I don't think somebody's an anti-Zionist if they disagree with Israel's environmental policies, right? There's, right? Okay, great. Okay, that's how, that's how you, you want to uh, go ahead. Fine, no problem. If you had a message in advance of Yom Yerushalayim about how to think about Israel sent out to the world, admittedly the small world of the Orthodox conundrum, but sent out to the world, one message for Yom Yerushalayim as we approach this day, what would you say to people? how wonderful it is that after 2,000 years, the Jewish people are in their eternal capital and have sovereignty over their eternal capital. That's something the entire world should celebrate. They should recognize how amazing it is that there is hope for all people, no matter how distant they are from their homeland, that they can return. And no matter how the Jewish people were out of their homeland, because we erred, we sinned. Right. And now look at the at, at the, if, if a, a people could sin for 2000 years and then find their way back, there's salvation in it for everybody. Every single person can find their way back. They can repent and they can improve and they can get back. The message of the Jewish people in Yerushalayim is that we are always going to improve and life is always going to get better, even if we hit bumps in the road. Beautiful. And I mean, one final question Ori, before we go. Sure. Despite what you said. And I accept that you are far more in the know than I am. I am sure there are some college students who feel that they are being oppressed because they support Israel. They feel definitely that the weight of the public opinion on their campuses is against them. What message would you have for them? Those people listening right now who are pro-Israel, who are Zionists, but feel cowed into submission by the people around them, making them feel as if they are reactionary, as they're anti-progressive and against all the things that are considered good in the world. Be strong. Right. We all face and I'm not in your shoes. I'm not I'm not standing where you're standing. And I can't say that you're not feeling something that you're feeling. And I'm not, I don't mean at all when I paint this rosy picture on, on this on this podcast. I don't mean at all to disqualify and negate people's feelings and people's true experiences. I don't want anyone to get that impression. I hope they've listened to this far and heard me say that. Uh, but I would tell those people, be strong. You have an entire nation of nine million people standing behind you. 
And on top of them, an entire U.S. government that stands behind you, a, a, an American population that is over 70% pro-Israel. Yes, you're, 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 you're in a tough situation for these couple of years that you're on your particular campus. But know that the world is behind you, that Israel is a strong nation, that Israel is a confident people, and that you are a member of that community. And as such, you enjoy the privileges of that support. Well, Rabbi Uri Pilichowski, as a Yom Yerushalayim treat, it was really nice to have you on today. I feel much better after speaking with you than I did beforehand. I don't know how I'll feel tomorrow, but at the moment, <laughs> you've painted a very positive portrait, and I appreciate it. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum Podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, The Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffeehouse can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.